I'm J.G. Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Parallax is you observe an object, you see a change, but that change is not really a change in the object, but just a change in how you relate to the object in your perspective of the object. Welcome to the testing room of the Parallax Corporation's Division of Human Engineering. Now, please cross the chair, and you'll sit down, make yourself comfortable, and be sure to place each one of your hands on the box on either side of the chair, making sure that each one of your fingers is on one of the white rectangles. Sit back, nothing is required of you except to observe the materials that are presented to you. Be sure to keep your fingers on the box at all times. Alright, hope you find the test pleasant experience. On this edition of Parallax Views, I'll be speaking with political scientist Justin Murphy. Since September 2013, Justin Murphy has been an assistant professor in the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Southampton in Southampton, UK. As a political scientist, Justin's work has revolved around questions pertaining to information technology, ideology, and human behavior. In addition, Justin has had a long-standing interest in radical politics as a long-time left-wing political activist who seeks to, quote, theorize a universalist emancipatory politics consistent with the eclipse of human agency by non-human superintelligences. Justin's work has been published by such outlets as the British Journal of Political Science, IEEE Intelligent Systems, Parhesia, a journal of critical philosophy, Black Lives Matter, Foreign Affairs, Vast Abrupt, and The New Statesman. Justin also hosts the Other Life podcast, where he can be heard discussing politics, philosophy, science, and sociology with a wide variety of expert guests. I wanted to have Justin on the show because he is currently associated with a social media movement known as Cave Twitter, which describes itself as proponents of unconditional accelerationism. As listeners to my previous podcasts will know, I've covered this topic of accelerationism before, most notably with Elizabeth Sandifer, author of Neo-Reaction, a Basilisk, and Elliot Rosenstock, author of the Zero Books publication Zizek in the Clinic. I invited Justin on the show to further explore this theory of accelerationism, to delve into the ideas of Nick Land, or as I like to call him, the Shanghai Sith, to discuss the concepts of patchwork and exit. And finally, to take a dive into Justin's deep-seated interest in religion, specifically Catholicism, and how all these divergent topics 
have come together for him in the present moment. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Justin Murphy. And to, let's say, accelerate you into the conversation, I've got a track entitled Death Race 2000 by Artemis Gordon. Check him out, folks.
Welcome to Parallax Views, Justin Murphy. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. So I wanted to have you on because uh, you, you have a podcast called The Other Life. You you stream on, on YouTube and you, you cover a lot of uh, really uh, divergent areas of interest. Uh, but you're you're also uh, an, an academic. Uh, you, you do a, a lot of uh, public opinion research. H- how did you get involved in the academy? Well... It was in my own university experience that I first really felt strongly that I I wanted to pursue an intellectual life. And academia just seemed like the most natural way to pursue the intellectual life and to kind of secure for oneself the 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 finances and the kind of public legitimation required for yeah, having an effective long-term intellectual life and project. So that was when I kind of decided, all right, let's do everything I can to take a stab at trying to, you know, become a proper, a proper professor. Right, right. And how long, how long have you been uh, doing academic work? Well, I guess in some way I started when I was in university. I, if you count that, then what, I guess about more than 10 years now, but in a more serious and professional capacity, I guess I probably would date that to, to my PhD program. Um, and probably about, you know, halfway through the PhD process is when you kind of really come into your maturity as a, as an independent, you know, intellectual or scholar, because that's sort of the whole point of of the phd is to really kind of constitute yourself as someone able to do high level independent and original contributions to you know scientific literatures so that was only really probably about six or seven years ago okay okay and then um the the main reason i i wanted to get you on was because uh I've done a few shows now covering issues like uh, this whole thing with uh, NRX or Neo Reaction and then uh, accelerationism. And you've sort of been involved in, you know, that sort of space, particularly with with accelerationism. Um, I I think there's a thing on Twitter called uh, like Cave Twitter, hashtag Cave Twitter. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, t- t- tell me what h- – how would you define accelerationism? Because I see it used in so many different ways by, by different people. Sure. Well, I think m- most generally and perhaps most importantly, it's really a kind of culture or milieu, if you, if you will. I would say it's a very general perspective, and there's a bunch of different people interested in this perspective and a bunch of different people who – more or less adopt this particular view of the current political and economic and technological moment. But then within that larger cultural milieu, mostly that takes place on the internet, I would say at at the present moment, there's just the widest variety of variations and, and, and very, very different angles and takes and aesthetics on it. So to be honest, I don't think that there is very much of a specific 
one highly refined and unified accelerationist theory of of the world. I think that would be a mistaken way to to think about it. But in my own words, I guess the accelerationist perspective in, in my own view is basically just that we have a lot of traditional concepts and traditional assumptions for, you know, how we think about society and causes and effects within, you know, social phenomena. And that's often very linear. It's often very discrete. We think about particular variables, you know, having particular effects on particular other variables in a fairly straightforward, linear kind of fashion. And we often just intuitively tend to assume incremental changes in history. These are kind of baseline, I think, tendencies in standard conventional, you know, philosophical reflection on politics and society and what have you. And in my own view, the accelerationist moment or the accelerationist perspective is just the the realization that actually much of society and reality as we know it is characterized by nonlinear processes or feedback loops and and sort of exponential takeoffs that these sorts of nonlinear dynamics in other words are much more rife than people typically think and common intuitive ways of understanding and thinking about society and in particular that the period of human history that we call modernity and everything that follows is especially seems to be characterized by a kind of long-term exponential takeoff sort of dynamic. And when you start to take that seriously, almost everything specific about particular reflections regarding, you know, social and political phenomena, it all kind of starts to change from, from that kind of basic insight or interpretation on, on, on the nature of modernity as an intrinsically explosive exponential takeoff kind of dynamic. And I would say that the larger accelerationist milieu is the one thing that everyone has in common is that they more or less share that kind of perspective on, on the explosive exponential nature of, of modernity. And, but other than that, there's just a, a bewildering variety of different tendencies and styles and and aesthetics. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I I, I would say it's a, a good starting point. I know, um, you know, websites like the uh, the New Republic and um, Vice have have sort of tried to narrow it down as being a largely uh, an online sort of philosophical movement that advocates for uh, accelerating the processes of capitalism to to an end point. I, I don't know what you uh, think of that, because that seems to be one of the major interpretations of it. Sure. That would be a more specific component, I guess, of the accelerationist perspective understood in the most general abstract sense that I just laid it out. The reason I laid it out in the very abstract sense I just did is because even within the accelerationist orbit, there are there are disagreements even about that. I mean, what exactly um, what exactly it means to accelerate the process, as it were, 
or how one wants to accelerate the process or even the, the, the question about how much human agency can even be said to exist. There are interesting debates about all of these questions. So that's why I think it's kind of safest to think about it as a general milieu. Even, I mean, there's even this tendency called decelerationism, which of course signals itself as being the opposite of accelerationism, but it's one of those things where that too is within the accelerationist orbit in some sense. So, so it's quite complicated, but to, to address a little bit more of the specific idea that you just articulated, yes, there is this, this particular kind of lineage, I guess you could say, of, of accelerationism that goes roughly from, from Marx and then up to uh, Deleuze and Guattari in particular, I would say would be the two probably most uh, popular and well-known signposts for for the the line of thinking that you just articulated, um, which it, which is basically the idea that even if you dislike capitalism and even if you want to see a post-capitalist future, whatever whatever you might think about that, the only real option available to human beings is in some sense, more or less, to go with the process rather than resisting it. But other than that kind of intuition, that very general intuition, there are all kinds of interesting debates about what exactly that entails. And so to to kind of give you any particular or specific interpretation of that, I mean, I could do that. that. I could give you my own views for sure, but that would just be my idiosyncratic views on it. If right now we're talking about the the general school of thought or the milieu, then you you really have to leave it kind of that that vague, I would say. Well, I I, I do want to get to to your more idiosyncratic, as you say, views on it. But uh, something something I want to get into. We we go from as you, as you said, Marx to sort of Deleuze and Guattari when it comes to the traditional definitions of uh, accelerationism. And, and you also mentioned this this milieu, and I guess there's what uh, three sort of um, forms that this uh, accelerationist thought has taken now, um, especially on Twitter. There's a uh, uh, right accelerationism, left accelerationism, and then unconditional accelerationism. And also, I think uh, there's a new term being thrown around called gender accelerationism. Could you tell us about these different schools of thought? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you just pretty effectively summarized the main subdivisions that are currently active in thinking about accelerationism. Cave Twitter, you also mentioned before, I would say is mostly adjacent to unconditional acceleration. I guess I would be more in line with unconditional acceleration, except I'm I'm. I remain, I think, a little bit more sympathetic to to the prospects of a left accelerationism than maybe a lot of people currently kind of labeled under un- unconditional accelerationism. But sociologically, in terms of who I'm kind of hanging out with and talking with at this point and and thinking with, people would probably put me under unconditional accelerationism. And right, so right accelerationism is Nick Land, and it's adjacent to neo-reaction, but not entirely overlapping with neo-reaction. I would say you're right. So the, for, for unconditional acceleration, 
you have people like Vince Carton and Edmund Berger and Amy Ireland. I would say that what you cited as gender accelerationism is, again, just one of the, you know, more idiosyncratic and creative twists on unconditional accelerationism. I would I would kind of in the cladistics of accelerationism, I, I think gender accelerationism and would be within the larger umbrella of unconditional accelerationism. I'm not sure if Nick's land would agree with that, but sociologically, at least that is the lay of the land as, as far as I understand it. Right. That I think I already said the, the, the main representative of right accelerationism would of course be, you know, the infamous and, and devilish outsideness of Nick land and Xeno systems. And I'm trying to think what else. So then there's also a bunch of other, figures who have been kind of contributing to this conversation who are in the accelerationist milieu and but not necessarily easily placed under these these schools of thought you cited so one would be for instance uh dam yehu i think that's how you pronounce it that's how nick land pronounced it yeah that's how nick land pronounced it i don't know actually if it's jehu or yehu um but he has been very active in these conversations he's kind of pulled back but i know nick land read him a lot and, and took him very seriously. And then a lot of people thought they were the same person, actually. That Nick was <laughs> damn Yehu. Yes. I, I have heard that before. I find that <laughs> um, implausible personally, but um, I think Nick has enough of multiple accounts to deal with. I doubt that he was writing all that stuff that damn Yehu was. So yeah, there's damn Yehu. He's more of a, a kind of classical Marxist, I would say, but certainly accelerationist, Marxist. And then who else? I mean, then there's a bunch of other, I would say, people that all the accelerationists are reading and paying attention to. And, you know, it very much kind of is complementary to accelerationist motifs, but they're not necessarily, you know, accelerationist per se. So just to to throw out a few names for people who might be interested, um, there's this person, S.C. Hickman, I think I, ha- I I couldn't tell you too much about what they think, but I've I've seen their stuff. And there's R.S. Backer, who I think is really, really interesting. He's a fantasy writer. Apparently, he's like quite a successful and prolific fantasy author. Um, but he's also scientifically sophisticated and writes, I think, pretty stunning and incredible um, blog posts about, yeah, yeah, society and, and, and politics. And again, I don't know if he would call himself an accelerationist, but it's absolutely kind of within the accelerationist perspective there is also then left accelerationism which i haven't quite broken down and i think the consensus right now is that left accelerationism is kind of dead i think i think most people for for a long time the the representatives of left accelerationism were uh nick serenicek and alex williams who wrote inventing the future the you know quite uh, widely read verso book from a few years ago that really kind of tries to announce itself as a major kind of left accelerationist statement. There was definitely some interesting debates around that. And in the, in the wake of that, I know Nick land actually engaged those arguments a lot in his lectures on accelerationism with the new center. And there were some efforts to kind of kickstart some, some intellectual representatives of, of that form of left accelerationism on on Twitter, I think, for instance, you might have seen Altwoke was was a project at one point they put out some documents. And right. So that was another kind of incarnation of the left accelerationist uh, effort. But I think 
the the general consensus is that Nick Land's kind of responses to that, I think, have kind of won the day. And just in terms of intellectual activity, I don't really see people like Serena Chicken Williams or Alt Woke or or these kind of left accelerationist people. They're not really making advancements right now, as as far as I can tell. And so I think the sense is that unconditional accelerationism is kind of perhaps the 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 most compelling way to think about accelerationism. In other words, that it doesn't have any clear or necessary ideological affiliations. Um, and I, that, I think the evidence for that is simply that there's more people doing more activity under that kind of perspective. And that, that's a sign of a fruitful scientific research program, I think. Um, anyway, so that would be my personal take that I think, and I think there's some evidence to believe that even Nick Land is increasingly partial to the unconditional accelerationist perspective. In other words, people, there are interesting questions about like, is his right wing persona? How genuine is it? Is it really just a kind of creative performative ploy to, you know, to, to make his ideas spread, you know, in, in certain communities? Is it a kind of tactic? Is it just a tactical decision um, or of some kind, you know, how much does Nick really believe the rather devilish, and notorious kind of right wing provocations that that he puts out because he also has, you know, these other less devilish personae. And so there's some reason he's also been very quite uh, favorable to a lot of the unconditional accelerationist um, directions. So some of us kind of are inferring that he's perhaps more sympathetic to ultimately like the way that he actually sees things ultimately boils down to something more like an unconditional accelerationism. And right. So the final thing I would just say is that um, the work that I've been doing has re- I've actually really been trying to contribute to a, a more left accelerationist perspective. And, you know, I've written a lot about communism in the past few months or even the past year from what I would call a quite clearly accelerationist perspective. And I so in other words, I don't think a lot of people necessarily see me as a left accelerationist because that's kind of occupied by people like Serenachik and Williams. But my personal view is that there remains a lot of interesting space still to be explored um, for a kind of left ex- accelerationism that I think is uh, more compelling than than what's currently on offer under that label. And I would describe my own work over the past year as unconditional accelerationist, but with a kind of left wing flavor, perhaps, or left wing motivations that I'm still, you know, trying to to work through. I think I've lectured enough on that topic. Sorry if that was a bit of a long response. No, no, I, I think it's good to parse these things out. Um, when it when it comes to this idea of 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 right accelerationism, I, I think sometimes people may get confused because when people think right, they think uh, conservative and um you know, why would a conservative want want to sort of uh, accelerate things rather than, you know, preserving the the normal structure? And I, I think this is an interesting point to get into, uh, to launch off into sort of Nick Land's ideas and, and sort of uh, a clearer definition if, if we can uh, parse one out of right accelerationism. Right. Sure. Well, it just so happens that I recently recorded a a long podcast with Nick. And this was one of the things I was really trying to understand better about his his viewpoint. 
Because what I find really interesting is that, as you might know, Nick Land's early writings in the 90s, they, I think, very clearly had a left-wing kind of flavor to them, as I mentioned to Nick and kind of was prodding him about. You definitely get a kind of emancipatory uh, vibe from from the early CCRU writings. And, you know, they seemed at that time to be to believe that there are all these interesting tactical opportunities for human beings to hack the 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 macropod, as it were. And it has this very heady kind of liberatory left wing flavor to it. And that's one of the reasons why I got very interested in Nick Land at, at the beginning. And so it's very fascinating that, of course, as is well known, he, he took a major turn towards very radical right wing stylistics at the very least. And so I was asking him about this, basically. And and I mean, you'll have to listen, I guess, to my podcast to, to hear his perspective. I won't try to summarize what he said, but the overall implication of that that dialogue, as far as I was able to take from it, is that there is a there tends to be this kind of ideological undecidability around accelerationism, because the whole idea is that if you really want to get past kind of the horrors of any particular status quo situation, in other words, like leftists want to, you know, we, we want to transcend the, the the injustices and the horrors of of the status quo. If you really want to do that, then the only really viable way to do that is to is to hitch your wagon towards towards capitalism with capitalism and kind of um, almost become so capitalist that the status quo capitalism can't handle it or something like that. And so if that is the case, I think it's quite easy to see how um, being, you know, having a leftist kind of perspective and being in a leftist milieu or sociology, um, if those if if that general inertia of of leftism is about kind of dampening the effects of capitalism and ultimately it's a non-accelerationist kind of tendency i mean if you've ever been to a left-wing activist uh meeting i mean it's quite clear that most people who identify as leftists do not want to accelerate things they want to um you know soften the edges of things they want to reduce harm they want to make things go slower and easier at a more humane rate and pace to be more sympathetic to more people to make society, you know, less, less brutal. That is the overwhelming tendency of people who identify as leftists. So you might be interested in emancipation. You might be interested in liberation. You might be interested in justice and equality and freedom for all, but even if you have a left-wing perspective, a left-wing temperament, and you even find yourself sociologically on the left, if you really want to actively think and live in a way that tends towards the supersession or transcendence of the, the horrors and injustices of the status quo, you actually find yourself needing to go in a in what is defined as a right-wing direction. And I think that's what happened to Nick in, in his in, in his life trajectory and in his in his intellectual trajectory. And I think that's how you find yourself popping out into these like neo reactionary possibilities and, and conversations, because the current leftism, as we know it, is in Nick's words, it simply is the, the break on the accelerator. 
Right, right. Well, it's 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 interesting because um, accelerationism is is an interesting it's an interesting concept to me, especially in the abstract. But I can also understand why many leftists are weary of it in in the sense that I mean it. Uh, mm-hmm. who, who is it that talks about it? Uh, Benjamin Noyes. Mm-hmm. In the book, uh, Malign Velocities, you know, he pushes back on it a little bit in the sense that, I mean, accelerationism as a sort of a line of thought in a practical sense would acquire, would require essentially an immiseration of, of the working class, a sort of drowning in that sort of immiseration of that group sort of, you know, being decimated. Right. Well, I think the accelerationist view is that humanity is and will continue to be decimated. And that is completely beyond our agency. That's a, that's a technological process that is already underway and irreversible. It's almost inscribed into the nature of reality as a kind of cybernetic evolutionary competitive system. And basically coming to terms with that as as reality itself is one of one of the key planks of the accelerationist perspective. And I think every bit of data we have about the modern experience shows that we are indeed being swept away by processes that are much larger than us, that are on a technical level more intelligent than us. I mean, global capitalism is a super intelligent system. It, it is above all of our heads. It is smarter than us. And it guides us now. There, there's, to imagine otherwise, to talk about how we're going to tame it, is from the accelerationist perspective, I think, pure fantasy. Well, it, it gets into uh, Nick Land's sort of uh, allusions to sort of a Skynet and, and sort of Rocco's Basilisk and, and this sort of uh, idea of, of uh, an AI that's going to sort of uh, overtake humanity, so to speak. And I'm not I'm not sure that he's being literal with that, but it sort of uh, works as a nice metaphor for what you're talking about right now. Sure. Yeah, that's right. And I, I mean, I think I think you can take that stuff quite literally. <laughs> Uh, or, you know, perhaps more literally than many people want to think. I mean, it's all like it's already happening. It's it's a continuous process. I mean, the ability to live a human life is every passing year just becoming harder and harder, especially for people at the bottom. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely right. Now, the to me, this doesn't mean that a left that a, that a, that a serious and intelligent leftism is impossible. I actually do still think that it is. I only think that it requires one to start with a, a more kind of radical reckoning with the horrors of of you know technological reality uh, and 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 the nature of modernity. And I mean, I, I don't know if you want to get into this now or later or whatever, but I think this is one of the reasons why religion is increasingly salient and and will continue to be increasingly salient because when you reckon with the 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 hor- horrible reality of 
of capitalism, of modern technology, and sort of of the yeah the takeoff of of modernity, the 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 path that that we are shooting down with modernity. When you really kind of grapple with that and are willing to take it seriously, you begin to realize that actually religion all along was a highly sophisticated encoding of 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 precisely a, a way to try to kind of forestall these horrors um, that that religion is a kind of social technology for sustaining uh, livable and joyful community despite the 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 threat of these horrors that have always been kind of hanging around and 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 threatening from from day one but with modernity really kind of finally gets unleashed so now that we're kind of being forced to recognize, you know, these horrors that I think the, the world religions have always kind of warned us about from day one, now they're actually becoming literal. I think you're going to see more and more people taking very seriously religion. And I actually would add that I think if you want to have a serious leftism today, it's almost indispensable. It's almost impossible to not find yourself taking recourse to uh, religious idea structures but we can talk about that later if you want or, or whatever you want i i want to get into that when you when you say that religion acts as a um a, a sort of a stalwart against uh these horrors what, what do you mean by these horrors uh j just to um lay that out a little bit more sure well you know the the old school and well-known idea of the faustian bargain is that you know the the devil comes in the form of highly attractive, almost undeniably desirable temptations. And once you take those temptations, once you make a bargain with the devil, you find yourself locked in a spiral that is beyond your control, that points directly to hell, basically. And, you know, the intellect has, in, you know, in the, in the Christian tradition, the intellect has always been identified as one of the inroads to to the devil, to, towards towards pride, towards arrogance, and towards the creation of systems that all of a sudden get out of hand and start to push us towards towards doom, basically. So you see that, you know, like I one of my favorites would be uh, Goethe's Faust, where I think he shows very clearly or dramatizes very clearly that you know the very the intellectual impulse itself is already a kind of bargain with the devil. And for for most of human history, it was, or at least for in the modern period, it was easy enough to convince ourselves that, you know, intelligence is this uh, fantastic, you know, unambiguously good thing, the, the ability to create technologies to solve problems and to, and to promote our survival and flourishing, rationality, that these were all kind of unambiguously good things. Uh, modernity is basically you know, a slow process of human beings kind of saying, no, intelligence isn't that big. Of, it's not a problem. There's no real, you know, there's no threat of hell. It's all just superstition. There's nothing but good to be had if people just apply their intelligence towards competitively solving problems. That was, you know, the, the modern conceit is that that's, that's all good. And that, that's, um, you know, gonna, gonna lead to improvements for everyone. Of course, the religious perspective has always been, 
um, no, you're crazy. Those are laced with all kinds of ten- all, all kinds of um, possible ways of, of of going directly to hell. And, you know, people have historically thought, thought that that was a kind of like superstitious statement about the afterlife. But but no, it's not. It, you know, hell is basically just a dramatized way of of warning where humanity will go if it lets its pride and conceit and intelligence out of the bag. And modernity is precisely that letting the cat out of the bag, as it were. And hell is precisely where we are currently going. <laughs> What's well, it's it's interesting too because um, it sort of reminds me how you know e- even though the Enlightenment is is often associated with uh, y- you know this sort of uh, progressive linear view of history, there's also been uh, left wing critics of of the enlightenment tradition uh, i'm specifically thinking of of the frankfurt school yeah. and people like uh adorno and marcusa and and walter benjamin and um oddly enough if I, i've talked to some some people from europe who uh see in in characters like adorno a sort of um precursor to a, a sort of uh, left-wing new age uh, christianity of sorts hmm. um have, have you uh looked into people like Adorno at all and, and their sort of critique? Absolutely. I'm a huge fan of the Frankfurt School and Adorno in particular. I, I completely agree with the basic premise of what you're saying. I definitely wouldn't think of it as new agey, um, but I, I completely agree that Adorno is a fantastic reference and, and set of resources for thinking through precisely all the stuff that we're talking about right now and, and remains underexplored, to be honest. Um, and I think that's because his his perspective of social critique has a has a strong kind of reactionary element to it. It's very inconsistent with the the trajectory that the left has taken over the past few decades. You know, his infamous comments about jazz and 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 stuff like that. You know, he 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 really was culturally conservative in the sense that um, he saw a lot of contemporary culture as just irredeemably degenerate products of of everything that's wrong with capitalism. And nowadays the left has increasingly become pure compassion, you know, pure sympathy with the downtrodden. And so, so it makes sense that Adorno has been squeezed out of, of attention from leftists. But I think that if you're really interested in salvaging a meaningful kind of left-wing perspective, Adorno uh, is, is, is a fantastic place to begin. And and he's uh he's he's uh he's a difficult author to sort of grapple with at times just because I, I mean he he has a lot of profound insights mm-hmm. is is how I would put it uh specifically the 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 book that I always like to recommend to people is uh his book of aphorisms Minima Moralia where he has the famous line the wrong life cannot be lived rightly right it's a great book you and I. I think have a lot to talk about because that's also one of my favorite books. So I'm glad you said that. Yeah. And, and actually for what it's worth, I actually have never really talked about this too much, but the idea encoded in that line you just said is, is pretty much one of the main meanings of, of this kind of title that I've been using of other life. That's kind of exactly what I'm getting at. And a lot of what I'm trying to figure out is precisely, you know, the, that there does remain, there always remains the possibility of another kind of life and that that other kind of life 
is is the true life. You know, I think that uh, Foucault is really good on this. I think um, Adorno is also really good on this. So I could not agree more. Yeah, and, and he also has a, a really um, interesting critique of uh, instrumental reason, which uh, reminded me of what you said in, in regards to this idea of intelligence and rationality and logic is sort of the, the, the pinnacle in a lot of people's eyes. And I, I think uh, in some ways Adorno could be seen as pushing back on that with his critique of instrumental reason. Absolutely. Uh, again, you hit the bullseye. I think, I mean, in my own writing over the past year, I've employed this concept, that very that very phrase of instrumental rationality all over the place, because I think it really is a nice way of summarizing the very specific locus of everything that goes so horrible with with modernity. And I think it also gives you a kind of psychological reference, a specific kind of component of our own psychology that you can fairly specifically kind of identify and compartmentalize and that we can then start working on on hacking. In other words, like I think it's it's there are lots of interesting opportunities available to people alive today, even though I think that capitalism is this larger, much larger and more complicated process that we don't as human beings have have agency over. There do still remain a lot of options to to living human beings to what I would call sort of uh, engineer to re-engineer social technologies in a ways that kind of uh, hold back the problems of instrumental rationality or, or kind of contain instrumental rationality and its perverse tender hooks in in our own everyday lives i think there are ways to kind of pull that back and to unleash you know non-instrumental rationality or what the frankfurt school calls substantive rationality in things like and to me that's basically my vision of communism and you know to translate it even further that's also what i think has always been meant by heaven by bringing heaven down to earth that's always been the christian injunction and to me communism is basically communism or heaven i I think you can use those as basically interchangeable terms is essentially the the creation of ethical principles or in other words affective social technologies which stave off and 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 push back as much as possible against the evil that comes from instrumental rationality and unleashing um unconstrained you know interpersonal creativity flourishing what have you and that basically is movement towards collective movement towards substantive rationality that basically sums up how i see these things yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting, too, because, uh, you know, as much as uh, I, I've seen uh, Adorno lambasted by, you know, the right and even even now certain uh, people who are, are, are sort of uh, seen as part of this so, sort of whole rationalist sort of movement online um, that's associated with Sam Harris, I'm, I'm specifically thinking of um, – Steven Pinker, mm-hmm. who just wrote a book called Enlightenment Now, and I was uh, very taken by the fact that he devoted a whole book to the Enlightenment, and I would have thought that he would have mentioned uh, Adorno and dealt with Adorno's critique of the Enlightenment, but instead he sort of just mentions Adorno as an enemy of the Enlightenment and sort of uh, brushes him aside, mm-hmm. you know, and he also does that with the uh, sociologist Zygmunt Bauman, who I, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he... Uh, he was uh, an extremely interesting uh, sociologist of, of the Marxist variant because he was also 
extremely interested in Catholicism. Okay. You know, but um, it, it's interesting because um, y- y- you don't see a very strong critique of uh, people like Adorno and Bauman and the Frankfurt School, uh, especially when it comes to the right wing, who sort of uh, have constructed a conspiracy theory to dismiss dismiss the Frankfurt School of thought. Yes, I, th- I think that's basically right. And I think another data point in favor of the argument you just made is Jordan Peterson. Also, I think I think Jordan Peterson, you know, the way that he kind of dismisses what he calls cultural Marxism, this whole meme of of cultural Marxism, you know. If cultural Marxism includes anything, it includes the Frankfurt School and the way that he sort of dismisses it all is really unfortunate because I think Jordan Peterson would have so much to agree with Adorno about. I would love for Jordan Peterson to read Minimum Moralia and and hear his considered thoughts on it, because I think he would find much of value. And I think that if someone can, you know, once I start talking about this, I find people in my milieus start to get really upset because people like Jordan Peterson is so, you know, he's so anathema to kind of like cool hipster, fashionable, you know, like accelerationist avatars on, on Twitter. But I mean, you know, I think if you, if you were to dig deeper on that and you could basically kind of find um, the, the translation between someone like Jordan Peterson and Adorno and even someone like Deleuze, you would you actually that's actually a, a, a very, very uh, unexplored, but I think very likely to be fruitful um, kind of uh, Venn diagram, if you will. And I, and I think very few people are really thinking about that, that ideological space and that intellectual space. And I think there's a lot to be found there. Yeah, I, I want to get into the Jordan Peterson thing here because you've uh I, th- I think you've done a whole uh, bit. Of, you, you've done some research on the 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 type of people that are into Jordan Peterson. Mm. Uh, you, you had a uh, a paper on your website about how there's a lot of people who see themselves as left liberals that are interested in Peterson. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that and your own uh, personal take on on Peterson's work? Yeah, sure. So I've actually done a, a fair amount of research now in different kind of subdomains of of internet subcultures and. I find a recurring pattern, and this was my hypothesis in the beginning, and this is why I, I got very interested in understanding the data that we have for internet subcultures, is because I've long hypothesized that the current face of political leftism is actually a very small slice of the larger population of leftists, and it's not at all representative, really. So I, I've long believed that there is a substantial number of leftists who not only don't identify with the current kind of progressive politically correct face of of social justice activism but are actively uncomfortable with it and have honest active rejections considered arguments against these views and rejections of of this kind of these common mainstream views but do so from a genuine left-wing perspective um, but the problem is that they're hard to find because if you've ever been to a left wing activist meeting today, the the dominant kind of politically correct progressivism, it simply does reign over everything. Um, you, there's really not much time or space or energy in any kind of currently organized left wing project to fund to express the fundamental uh, disagreements or, or rejections of the, the politically correct kind of model or what I would more generally call the moralistic model 
of, of political activism, anything that rejects that has been pretty completely kind of crowded out or pushed out of the current face of political leftism. Um, so if I'm right that there's huge numbers of genuine leftists who actually dislike and disagree with the contemporary face of leftism, you're going to have a really hard time measuring them or finding them precisely because of this 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 kind of enforced um, norms around what gets to be what is allowed to be called leftism. So basically, that's why I took to the Internet and did did a few different studies of Internet subcultures where it seemed to me there were kind of hidden or latent left wing people who are kind of refugees from contemporary, you know, activist progressivism. And so Jordan Peterson is one example. Another example is Kekistan, um, which is in the in the popular educated progressive viewpoint. Um, Kekistan and oh, another one would be Gamergate. These are both defined as alt-right movements that are more or less kind of uh, hateful, misogynistic, kind of trolling uh, brigades that basically love Trump and hate women. And this is the all right like this. Anywhere you find um, a, a educated progressive journalist writing about Gamergate, it's almost universally across the board. That is what they think Gamergate is. It's an alt right movement. Same thing with Kekistan. Same thing with Jordan Peterson. I, I, I think all of that is basically wrong. I think it's empirically untrue. And so I've done all of these studies on these different subcultures where I've collected data and made some, you know, educated inferences using my my skills and, and knowledge as, as a social scientist to estimate the political ideology of these ideologies of these of these different subcultures. And what I find pretty consistently across the board is that, yes, there's definitely a good handful in all these communities of of right wing people and, and very likely some pretty hard right people who I would probably find, um, you know, uh, let's just say, you know, unappealing company but there's also non-trivial segments of these subcultures that are straight up political leftists and when you add all of them up i think there's a lot of good evidence suggesting that my argument or hypothesis is true is that there is a huge reservoir of genuine leftists who are hanging out in these different subcultures and people don't even know it It, people are people are uh, completely unaware of that why I can see that, but then I, I also, I mean, not, not I'm, I, I want to push back sure, uh, yeah, politely on it. Uh, the, the issue I see with a lot of this internet subculture, uh, stuff is that so many people are willing to play bad faith games. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think of, you know, even, even the alt-right people do this, uh, Someone like Richard Spencer, for instance, uh, recently came out and was asked um, if he actually believed in free speech. And he said, no, that's just rhetoric. Mm. So you have a lot of people that will say, I'm a leftist or I'm a liberal when they're really, you know, just trying to engage in entryism. And I I don't think your viewpoint necessarily uh, denies that either, to be honest. Right. But I think think that's that's perfectly – uh, fair to to hypothesize. I think that's that's very likely. Um, I mean, again, this is where I think the accelerationist perspective, the larger perspective, is really useful because when you take a step back from all of this, I think the more sophisticated way to see all of it is simply that our traditional conceptions of ideology 
are starting to melt down. They're, they're starting to be overheated by technological changes that we can barely keep up with. So, you know, what I mean by that is it's never been more possible for motivated, you know, manipulative individuals to use public symbols in disingenuous ways, not only in disingenuous ways, but a, a larger quantity of disingenuous ways. And so what ends up happening is, you know, we have this chaotic public sphere where, you know, there's fighting that's taking place over what words mean. And so long as you have collective social systems to more or less kind of enforce shared meanings. And I think for most of human history, those shared meanings were enforced by by transaction costs. They, they were enforced by the simple difficulty and costliness of, you know, creating some harebrained new interpretation of a word and then spreading it to your followers and constituting a reality around it. Like that's always been very difficult <laughs> prospect. Um, so long as people have to like, you know, meet at the campfire every night to survive, you're, you're going to be hard pressed to get away with a fundamentally disingenuous, um, interpretation of a historically shared word, giving it a totally different meaning for personally self-interested reasons, and then convincing significant numbers of people to go along with that, that manipulated meaning of a word. That's good. That's prohibitively difficult for most of human history. All of a sudden, it's not only possible, it's actually really cheap and easy. And when you have large numbers of people starting to do that all of a sudden, you know, one hypothesis is simply that all of our ideological categories are themselves, they're being exploded altogether. Like they're meaning, there there are no unified meanings in terms of like ideological coordinates anymore because the very terms left and right, they're being used by a wide variety of actors with, with strategic interests in motivated ways. And I think the accelerationist view is really kind of like the one of the only ways to kind of uh, step back and get that and get that intuition. Right, right, and I, I think acceleration is, uh, you know, it's it's interesting with with stuff like Cave Twitter and Nick's Nick's Land, not Nick Land. Mm-hmm. There's there's Nick's Land who who sort of talks about this gender accelerationism stuff, and I, I feel like she's sort of riffing on fragmentation, ideological fragmentation, with the uh, the sort of playful use of that term, gender accelerationism. Uh, the accelerationists seem to notice uh, fragmentation and and focus on a lot more than a lot of other groups. They seem to see that there's all these different competing factions. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah. And so that also segues into this other concept that I think is really hot right now for very good reasons in accelerationist circles, but also in in other circles more, more generally, which is patchwork. I think a lot of us are really interested in patchwork, which is basically just a um, a, a nice little word to summarize a much larger kind of uh, set of debates or ideas around the increasing fragmentation of, of political authority and sovereignty. This comes out of Moldbug, uh, kind of well-known, one of the one of the most well-known thinkers associated with what is called neo-reaction. Um, he's not necessarily an accelerationist, but uh, definitely very adjacent to to Nick Land. And right. So, you know, patchwork seems to be it's it's both a normative interest for those who are still interested in normativity or making arguments about, you know, what is desirable. I, it, it, for some people, it has normative uh, connotations as as a as a desirable vision. For, you know, for Moldbug, for instance, Moldbug pr- proposes patchwork as as one of his 
you know, kind of preferable uh, systems or his vision, one of his visions for uh, where he would like to see things going. He doesn't necessarily make like big ethical moral arguments, but I'm, I just mean normative in the simple sense of of desirable. And then for I think a lot of the accelerationists, it's also interesting as a as a positive or just empirical phenomenon. I think a lot of people think that, you know, there is going to be more and more fragmentation and more and more exit is another you know popular category or concept. And and when when people are able with increasing ease to to exit that which they don't like through technologies such as the internet and you know also cryptocurrencies and things like this all of these all of these data points seem to suggest to people that fragmentation and exit will become increasingly rife and then what you'll see is um a certain fragmentation of political sovereignty uh to the point that you actually just have this large universe of many competing uh, political units. Right, right. And it, well, it, it gets into an interesting thing because I think the, the, the criticism I think a lot of people have when it comes to the accelerationist milieu is that it puts too much faith in the idea of, uh, the internet as sort of overtaking real life. Um, how would you respond to that? Well, look, I think there are a lot of popular criticisms or pushbacks against the accelerationist perspective, but a lot of them are, I think, kind of just moralistic, humanistic discomforts with imminent tendencies in the status quo. And so you can have debates about, you know, the Internet specifically. But I think the larger the larger picture that has been playing out, you know, since the Protestant Reformation, since the printing press, I think when you look at things in a, in a much larger or wider frame, the idea that increasing technological sophistication is producing increasingly refined information technology and that this information technology enables or lowers the costs of individuals or groups exiting established structures, that seems to be a very hard to deny general long-term pattern. And so I definitely think there was a lot of hype around the internet that was probably misguided or incorrectly specified Specifically, you know, all the people who have thought or have claimed that, you know, the Internet is going to, like, make current Western liberal democracies healthier or more democratic, um, that type of cyber democratic optimism was definitely very stupid, <laughs> it turns out, um, I think, for sure, you can say that. But so so I don't think anyone in the accelerationist perspective is arguing that. The Internet is going to make everything OK for people or it's that it's going to solve any of these like really brutal problems coming down the pike. But I think the more relevant the more relevant concept really is is intelligence and, and, and the increasing the almost 
recursively increasing nature of intelligence is, is much more kind of primary. And the Internet would just be one very specific component of of that. And and as one component, it's subject to all kinds of, you know, political tinkering and 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 who knows what's going to become of the Internet as we think of the Internet. But the general trend of of uh, intelligence generally increasing itself seems to be the the really, really kind of existentially uh, radical and undeniable feature of, of, you know, the contemporary technological reality. Right. It, it reminds me of um, it reminds me of that line that Nick Land has in, in the now famous uh, essay Meltdown, mm-hmm. uh, where he says, uh, as markets learn to manufacture intelligence, politics modernizes, upgrades paranoia, and tries to get a grip. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's awesome. Yeah, so I think like what's really happening is is intelligence is increasing, and it increases through different forms. It 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 gets it it gets inside of different specific physical infrastructural systems, and 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 then it kind of. Uh, yeah, it bootstraps itself through these different forms, but those specific forms are going to mislead you if you if you get too fixated on those specific forms. So, I mean, the the internet would be one way to kind of get fixated and confused and misled about the what's really going on under the surface. But even like capitalism, you know, thinking about like capitalist institutions is in some sense um, a misnomer because you know intelligence itself is basically working through capitalism like capitalism is kind of like the 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 auto production of intelligence itself it's it's the recursive improvement of intelligence itself operating through human bodies and through human institutions and the internet is 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 basically the same type of phenomenon i think well there is there is a lot of uh there's an interesting uh aspect to Nick Land's work where he talks about this um, idea of the cathedral, which really is, is sort of shorthand for the sort of institutions that have uh, shaped public opinion. And there's a truth to this idea that the internet uh, sort of decentralizes uh, those institutions and their uh, authoritarian uh, power within society. I think I think you've written a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's I mean, there's no doubt that this is this is what I was saying before about how generally I think it's a long term tendency that the increasing sophistication of information technology tends to in the long run enable exit. And so this would be an example of that. But the error would be to think that the Internet, you know, is going to cause all people to respond the same. You know, so often like in so when you think about causes and effects in history and social science, thinking about average effects is is sometimes um, a dead end because often where the really historically significant action is taking place is in, you know, relatively small minorities. So if you look at the Internet, for instance, you know, the Internet <laughs> clearly so far has not led to most people being kind of uh you know, liberated and and becoming more creative and becoming more kind of anti-institutionally rebellious. No, of, of course not. In the early days, there 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 was a little bit of that. Perhaps there's always a little bit of that, but that's a relatively small minority of you know very pioneering types of people. 
clearly for, you know, the overwhelming majority of people, the Internet has been, you know, what what we might call re-territorialized in this kind of uh, Web 2.0 moment where, you know, Facebook and the, the, the most common things that most people do with the Internet on a daily basis could not be more constrained and pacified and consistent with, you know, the status quo institutions. So that I think has become quite clear. But the opportunity that it provides for um, a small minority of of radically inclined people who wish to kind of set sail from institutions, um, it, there's no doubting that, e- that either. That, that's been an undeniable feature, I think, from the beginning. And I think I think you're seeing more and more of it. Um, you know, I know Nick Land's view is that it comes in waves. This is something he told me very explicitly in, in my podcast with him. He thinks that there's a kind of cyclical um, nature to this where it kind of goes up and down. So, yeah, it's 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 an open question where where the Internet is going. But I think the the long term trends of, you know, technology are much less ambiguous. When, when we talk about this idea of exit that comes up uh, in, in Moldbug, Land, and, and even uh, uh, the, the accelerationist thought uh, in, in a broader whole, um, what, what do we mean by exit? Is it, is it – because I think uh, people may get confused and think we're talking about uh, a physical exit, but in many ways – it seems like what accelerationists are pointing towards is sort of a uh, a psychic exit of sorts, or or a, an exit from uh, restrictive mentalities or, or uh, ways of thinking. Well, that's a really good question, and so for your listeners, I'll just briefly kind of go over that idea of exit, so it's not unclear or or strange, and then I'll I'll address your more specific point about is this just a psychological. Process. So exit comes out of uh, the social scientist Albert Hirschman, who wrote a very influential little book called uh, Exit, Voice and Loyalty. And he basically argued, you know, to give a very cartoonish kind of version of this, he argued that there are kind of three basic modes of of political activity or, or three different ways that uh, a subject of political authority can respond to a structure of political authority. Exit, voice, and loyalty. So voice is, you know, democracy, right? You can vote. You can speak to your rulers. You can try to change the system um, by communicating, more or less. There's loyalty. You can just, you know, kiss ass, basically, and, and suck up to to the political authority. You know, lavish your, your, your love for them on them. And that's one way to, that's one way to navigate it. And then finally exit, which just basically means choosing not to play the game. And you can think about exit in, in many different ways. You can think about it as a physical process. You know, migration is a, is a kind of exit for sure. People escaping war, you know, that's an exit. That's an exit phenomenon, no doubt. That's a data point in, in kind of increasing the idea of increasing exits. But your question of, it, you know, in the accelerationist view, is it is it largely just a psychological phenomenon? And I think that's a really good question. I think I'm not sure that question has really been asked or or answered. I think for a lot of the the more kind of right wing libertarian types, it's seen as more physical, you know, so in the form of things like seasteading, which is a, a kind of right leaning libertarian 
project, which is actually, you know, underway. Like there's there's money and energy and institutions behind this that are trying to do this. And Peter Thiel. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. Peter Thiel is like a big proponent of that. Um, the Silicon Valley guy. Right. Yeah. Sure. So there, there's there's money behind this. There are people doing this. And uh, that just refers to basically using, um, you know, the the uh, legal ambiguity of international waters as a place to create physical structures of, you know, libertarian freedom. And so that, that's obviously very, very physical. That's not purely psychological. And then, you know, what I would say to the other about the other kind of directions and accelerationism is I think what's really cool about cyberspace for those, you know, for the small minority of people who really want to kind of uh, milk it for all it's worth in terms of opportunities for for, you know, creative experimentation, cyberspace really kind of it tends it tends to conflate or just how should I put it um, confuse the distinction between physical and psychological, right? Because, you know, if I use the internet to exit, so take my example, for instance, one example I really like is academia. Think about academia as a kind of legacy status quo institution. Um, what would it look like to exit academia? You know, if what I'm doing, you know, all the stuff I'm doing, like podcasting and making videos and just kind of really like throwing spaghetti at the wall with just my like just trying to kind of think and make and do things in, a, in an autonomous way, purely on the Internet. Um, like, I would say that I'm, I'm basically trying to exit. I mean, I don't think about it so consciously, um, but what I'm seeking exit, I'm seeking exit from all that currently exists, which is stupid and unjust and and unnecessarily constraining and that causes me depressiveness and causes me uh, all kinds of negative affects. I'm trying to escape that, you know, very, you know, how should I put it? Very established structure. That's both physical. You know, it's the buildings that I go into on a daily basis to make my money. It's the people. It's, you know, it's physical and psychological. Um, perhaps institutions are, are always a combination of the two. I'm trying to escape that or exit that, um, through, through the internet. Like cyberspace is a vector of exit. That is both psychological and physical because I'm, I'm, I'm doing something different with my body on a, on a day to day basis. Like I'm, I'm using this computer thing and the, these like devices in front of me. I'm, I'm reorienting my everyday bodily patterns, which are extremely physical, um, to, to basically optimize my own psychological experience to increase my own joy and to, to achieve you know, the, the goals of flourishing that I'm interested in doing, which is obviously psychological. Um, but, but it, but it's, it's still very real and physical. Like I'm, I'm hacking the neurobiology of my own emotions and I'm, you know, do you know what I mean? So it's like, I think the idea that it's just psychological is kind of, kind of misses, misses the point, which is that cyberspace is a vector of exit that is at once physical and psychological. And I think Time is going to show us more radically how true this is with things like virtual reality. I mean, it's just increasingly the case that these distinctions between psychological and physical are are increasingly useless and that what the order of the day is to exit status quo institutions in the creation of fundamentally novel realities that are both psychological and physical, I think. Well, it's it's interesting because I, I was thinking um, the reason I brought up the question is because uh, – 
you know, with, with Moldbug, we have this idea of of the red pill coming up. Um, he was he was one of the first people to use that metaphor taken from the Matrix. And now there's like the green pill and the, <laughs> the black pill and all these different types of pills. And of course, in the Matrix, uh, taking the red pill is sort of uh, having this awakening where you realize you're inside the Matrix. But uh, now thinking about it, it's not just a psychological process in that movie. It's also a, a physical thing mm-hmm. when you're when you're breaking out and realizing that you're in the pod. So it, it sort of traverses both areas. You know, interestingly, that movie does. Yeah, that's a good that's a good reference. I think you're you're totally right. So um, the other the other thing I wanted to get into before we move on to uh, religion again is. Uh, th- this idea of patchwork, um, I-, I have a lot of general listeners who-, who may be unfamiliar with the idea of patchwork. and I've-, I've heard it described in a lot of different ways. I've had some people tell me it's sort of a restatement of Kropotkin's idea of mutual aid. Hmm. Other people have compared it to the idea of uh, the temporary autonomous zone. How How would you describe patchwork? Well, that's interesting because those are generally kind of left-leaning uh, anarchist references, which I'm not saying they do, they don't make sense. That, that's interesting and, and useful to, to signpost. But, you know, patchwork, as most people think about it right now, at least in acceleration circles, is kind of specifically out of the mold buggy perspective. And so that's a very intrinsically kind of right leaning idea. And so in the mold bug model, patchwork basically just refers to a system of what he calls sovereign corporations. So he has basically this argument that governments even democratic governments, governments in general, are basically corporations. And it's 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 a it's a basically a corporate structure that exploits a particular territory for for money. And that you know, he thinks even like the US government is essentially this, but it just has this really manipulated and, and confusing management structure. So that like all of the lobbying groups and all of the all of the people who kind of are fighting for money in Washington this is just a horrible, inefficient management structure for what is basically a corporation that has the right to like exploit, you know, a, a particular territory. And so what he his idea is basically what would be much better is you if this is the reality of what government is to just rationalize it and have a have a correct and streamlined and rationalized management structure. And he thinks that what that would look like is. Um, you basically have a sovereign corporation that has complete jurisdiction, unlimited, absolute, like authoritarian domination of a particular territory, particular like plot of land or whatever. And it has complete control over what laws get created there, uh, you know, how how those laws are enforced, everything. But the idea, you know, it's a very libertarian idea in the sense that he he thinks that if you have a whole bunch of these then there's going to be competition and that competition will like people can move subjects of the governments are basically customers. He uses that, that equivalence, you know, explicitly the customers can move around to the different patches, to the different, um, you know, governance systems. And that when you have this on a large enough scale, you know, there will be strong selection pressures that make governors or governments, you know, converge toward, you know, the, the best possible uh, uh, governance, basically. And so that's that's basically in, in a, you know, very short and kind of cartoonish summary. That's kind of the, the mold buggy and idea of patchwork. 
Okay, okay, and I, I, I've actually, it's, it's, it's interesting because I've seen more uh, left-leaning people sort of become interested in it. I know um, Elliot Rosenstock, who is a uh, psychotherapist out of uh, California, who's written a book called Zizek in the Clinic. I, I had him on. Yeah, I've, I've talked, I've talked with Elliot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. El Elliot is uh, very much uh, sort of a, a left-leaning uh, kind of guy, and he's very interested in the idea of patchwork. So, so how do you think this can be? This is a, a libertarian idea for most people. So, how can it be applied to people who are interested, as as I think both of us are, in you know uh, things like equality or or what people would say is uh, egalitarianism? So that's a great question. I'm really glad you asked that because I think that that is kind of the one of the current million dollar questions for anyone who you know has has a I would say mature grasp of the current empirical reality and is also still interested in left-wing politics and, and categories such as liberation and emancipation. So I've basically been arguing for some time now that I think even in the Moldbuggian model, the there would very likely be a viable communist patch. And so the way that I see it is like if you want to be a communist today and you're at all serious person – you should try to explain how the commun how communism could be engineered as a viable patch within a kind of competitive patchwork system. And I think I think it can totally be done personally. My my personal sense is that probably patchwork would be a kind of multipolar, very pluralistic um, outcome. I, this is something that Nick Land said the other night when I was talking with her, and and I think I I totally agree. You know, there's probably an equilibrium in the long run where you can have multiple patches that have different governance structures for, you know, the diversity of of interests and preferences and temperaments that exist in, in human populations. And so my view is that there absolutely can be a, a communist patch and, and it can work, but it's a, it's just a challenging engineering problem. And, and so I've been thinking a lot about that. And I guess if you're asking, I can I'd be happy to share a little bit more about. Uh, how I think that that would look personally. Well, the first thing to note, I think, is that this is just completely anathema to most people who currently identify as leftists in, in like the public imagination, um, because, well, I, I'll get sidetracked going into that. Um, but I, I've, I've written a little bit about. No, no, let, let's 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 go into that uh, real briefly, because I think, you know, when people hear the term communism, they they still get sort of scare images in their head and and you know they they think uh oh that means everyone is is like completely equal and everyone has the same outcome and and it, it it's uh it's not necessarily that simple right so the way that i would basically explain that without getting too bogged down a bunch of my blog posts from like about this time last year were really focused on this but i think the way that i would summarize it just very quickly is that the first thing to recognize is that there's a trade-off between morality and and engineering, really. So, like, to create functional structures that are highly intelligent and complex and that work over time requires a certain a certain minimum, at least, of of coldness towards towards the nature of reality. There is there is a trade-off there. So, if what you really care about is not hurting people's feelings and you're super compassionate. And all you're really trying to optimize is like making the most vulnerable people, the most vulnerable people 
um, feel as good as possible or something like that. Like if that's, if that's the model that you're operating on, if that's the type of person that you are, you're going to have a really hard time making anything that works because making things that work require a kind of cold, cool engagement with, with how things actually are. And there are going to be always some people who, you know, don't benefit as much as they could or, or whatever the, the case might be. And so once you kind of recognize that as a, as a, as a sub point in all of this, the next point is to see that basically the current organized left is, is really like a, it's a massive cult of like pure compassion. So it's like the, it's people who are actually not at all interested in engineering anything. Uh, but they care a lot about, you know, the suffering of the downtrodden. And I have a lot of sympathy for that. I also tend to be just temperamentally in terms of personality. I, you know, I'm, I'm very empathetic and compassionate also. And that's one of the reasons why I was like active in the radical left for a while. It really mattered to me to try to help people who are like getting fucked by the system, uh, by reality today. But if you actually want to help anyone, you need to you need to be able to make shit. And once you start making shit, that's when you kind of have to be brutal about like, okay, some people are stupid. Some people are smarter than other people. And that's just that's that's a fact. That's that's truth. But it hurts people's feelings. So anyway, I think I've adequately described that that basic problem. Well, uh, another uh, another example I would give give is, um, for instance, if if, if you have, uh, you know, people go to protests and you see these fights between like Proud Boys and Antifa, right? Mm-hmm. And you have, you know, there's always arguments in the left about, um, you know, people who may not be as physically able trying to get involved in these fights. Right. And and they would say, oh, well, we need other uh, leftists to help us while we're in these fights, these physical confrontations. And uh, other leftists will say, well, that's that's ridiculous. You just shouldn't get involved in the fight the physical confrontation because that that makes you into a liability and it's not necessarily an issue of ableism so much as uh, we all can play different roles mm-hmm. within a, a movement and we have to be realistic and pragmatic about those roles yeah i think that's absolutely right i think that's a good example and the example of antifa and ableism is just one example. Uh, there are literally thousands of other examples that you can adduce if you have experience in left-wing activism. The problem I'm describing, it basically rears its head all the freaking time. And and it's, it's completely paralyzing. And, and to the point that, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy and, 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 and even love for like a lot of people who are like on the activist organized radical left. But so long as this is the reality, it's it's strictly in a kind of technical sense, a completely hopeless. Um, it's a it's a hopeless vector, I think. And so the the vector of exit, there is a kind of left wing vector of exit, I think, which is to say, look, everything that kind of passes for leftism in an organized activist sense and in, in the contemporary imagination and in terms of organizations that are currently labeled leftist, it's a willfully dishonest and and an incorrectly calibrated model of how the world works. And, and it's a, it's a kind of fake performance of, of helping the downtrodden that wokeness. What's that? <laughs> the whole, the whole idea of uh wokeness. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. It, it becomes a form of its own capital woke capital. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'm currently uh, pitching a book proposal actually, that's called woke how social justice warriors think. <laughs> and I, I basically want to, uh, kind of write the definitive book book like book length treatment of of this entire psychology. Uh, so you're absolutely right. Woke woke is the name for all of this. 
But the, the, the vector of, of exit for, I think, empirically serious kind of people with leftist temperaments is that you, you, you accept that almost everything labeled leftist today is, is wrong and, and willfully in operating on a kind of bad faith model that has a probability of close to zero, uh, of, of actually helping any human beings in the long run. And what you do is you, you, you exit. And what exit looks like in this context is I think it's as simple as the key, the key concept in my mind that, that I always go back to is, is the category of honesty. It means simply thinking as clearly as you can about what really looks to be the case and saying it as clearly and radically as you possibly can. And one of the first things you'll encounter if you start to try to do that is this problem of instrumental rationality, which you, you know, so correctly and usefully have already identified for us earlier in the, in the conversation. In many, many ways in our society, it's instrumentally very irrational to simply say what you really think and to try to figure out what you really think and to, and to just say it. Like almost across the board, this is generally punished. And I'm not talking about like grand gestures. I'm not talking about highfalutin scientific discoveries. I'm talking about people simply taking their own intuition seriously, taking their own thoughts and observations and feelings seriously and committing to figuring them out and saying them and expressing them to fucking anyone who will listen and letting the chips fall where they may. If you have that kind of ethically substantial, you know, to use a, a phrase out of Max Weber, which is, you know, kind of the counterpart to instrumental rationality, the opposite of instrumental rationality. If you have what Weber called, uh, you know, an ethically substantial rationality, then and you just say what you believe is true and you simply say what you think, what you what you really believe in, in other words, and let the chips fall where they may with a kind of instrumental recklessness. Amazing things start to happen. And I think that's both normative and, and empirical. There are actual mechanisms, I think, social psychological mechanisms that cause that type of radically ethical behavior to make shockwaves around it. And people will come out of the woodwork to talk to you. Communities will emerge out of it. Good, like things will happen. I think Jordan Peterson actually is a brilliant, um, articulate, he gives a brilliant articulation of precisely this stuff when he talks about, you know, the, why, why the idea of truth is so important and why speaking the truth and having faith that speaking the truth is going to have positive effects. Like that's basically, he says that's what faith means. And again, I think that brings this back around full circle to to religion. I think that this is an empirical, but also like a normative, a deep normative kind of consistency um, that's that's at work here. And so that's what I think exit means. It means simply being as honest as you can, as radically as you can, and finding other people um, that also want to do the same thing and figuring out how you can seek structures and create, you know, social technologies that promote joy and promote flourishing and yeah, I think that will tend to have a that will intrinsically tend to replicate the structures of, of religious communities, because because I simply think that religions actually were more or less quite accurate encodings of precisely what emancipated or liberated human communities uh, should be like. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting, again, because, uh, you know, for, for those having a, a, a knee jerk reaction to the the fact that you're you're dealing with these things like uh you know uh social justice warriors uh from a more left perspective and you're not 
you're not saying, well, we need to just ditch the, the vulnerable or, th- or throw them away uh, like some people on the right would, but you're saying we, we have to be uh, pragmatic and honest with ourselves about how we can all sort of work together and, and, and play our roles within these sort of activist circles. Um, it's, it's, it's weird how people can become very uh, knee-jerk about, about these issues. Yeah, definitely. I think you're totally right. I think if you actually honestly care about helping the downtrodden, your absolute number one first obligation is to arrange your own life and circumstances to the best of your ability to simply optimize your own joy. Because joy is the power to act, as Spinoza identified for us. And your ability to help anyone is a direct function of your own power to act. So like if you're living in a way that you find just kind of boring or depressive or, you know, if, if, if you don't feel like you're living in a way that maximizes your own joy, then you're actually betraying the working class. You're betraying the downtrodden. I, I really fundamentally believe that. And that's why I basically quit or all organized left wing activism is because I actually came to the to the to the conviction that not only was it like boring and depressing and 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 like took up a lot of time and energy and generally felt hopeless and and yeah just generally felt depressing all the time and so i wanted out for personal self-interested reasons it wasn't just that but it was the recognition that submitting to this kind of like low affect and this kind of like swirl of of anxious depressiveness that has no identifiable positive benefits on anyone like submitting to that is actually an active form of evil. Like you're actually betraying all the people you you could potentially help by being like a healthy person. Um, so it's not just useless. I think leftist activism is actually much worse than useless. Wow. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I I think there are a lot of problems with with the way leftist activism especially in the u.s is organized right now and the way it gets uh it uh, i mean even even with antifa right now uh antifa is sort of being subsumed into the uh the the sort of democratic or or democrat party uh logic and and sort of being used as a battering ram rather than than an actual anarchist movement now you know there's a term floating around called uh anarcho-clintonism is what some people are calling it (laughs) that's hilarious that's great Yep, I, but, I think uh, that's I think mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely predictable. I think you're just going to see more and more of that. Well, yeah, because in a lot of ways, uh, you know, we we have a left uh, in some ways that actually ends up defending the status quo, you know, especially in the era of Trump. And I'm I'm no fan of of Trump myself, but we do get into this this sort of weird space where it's like we sort of want to restore the status quo a lot of people on the left rather than trying to find uh, alternatives to either Trump or or the old status quo. Right. So the the last thing I, I wanted to get on, if you, if you have uh, the time, was um, you describe yourself as a uh, Catholic, and, and that gets into the religion thing again. How, how did you become interested in Catholicism? Sure. Well, the basic story, I guess, would begin with my own life background. I, I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school. I come from a Catholic family, and I, I went to Catholic school for 
three years at the beginning of my education from kindergarten to second grade. And it might not sound like a lot, but it actually was, I think, quite, quite significant, you know, to because I had lots of interactions with, you know, nuns and went to church as part of school. And, you know, that, I think that is a, a very kind of important developmental age. And so, you know, I went through the whole the whole gamut. I was confirmed when I was 14 or whatever. And that was kind of my formal, you know, entrance into, you know, being a member of the church. Of course, I was young and, you know, you're not reflective about this stuff at all. Um, but it was actually an interesting story, if you don't mind me sharing, because I don't think I've ever talked about it, but it's it's quite fascinating. And it, and it comes through very strongly in my adult life now. So I think it's actually worth sharing to answer your question. I had this episode, this extended episode when I was around nine years old, um, where I was really, really afraid of of going to hell. And specifically, I was really afraid of of lying. So I for like one or two whole years in my life, I, I it was really like a psychological problem. It, it was really unhealthy, really a, a problem. I was paranoid constantly about basically if I had any conversation with someone and I felt that maybe there was even like a a 1% chance that they misunderstood what I was genuinely just trying to say, that God would be watching that. He would interpret that as me lying. I would go to hell for it. And, and so for like a whole year or two of my life, after I had a conversation with anyone, I would have to, like in a paranoiac kind of obsessive compulsive way, I would have to review with them that they understood correctly what I was saying because I was afraid of of lying and potentially going to hell. So, you know, it's easy to say like, you know, religious upbringings, you know, are easy to get away from, or, you know, it's, you you know, you're not really thinking that consciously about things when you're young. But I think for me, at least I was, you know, my, my personal development as a person was, was highly uh, colored by that. And if you notice, like earlier in the conversation, I've, I've already been talking about honesty. And, and I think that that is a really, really crucial, both ethical category, but also a, a positive empirical category. I think that um, being radically honest is is a a very real and significant um, part of of a genuine human life and, and crucial for thinking about emancipation. So anyway, just to go to go back to your question a little bit more directly, I uh, once I turned 14, like, you know, and, and got my confirmation, like most young Catholics today, I, I quickly kind of uh, left it all behind and stopped going to church. And basically, I was just doing what I had to do to make my parents happy. And after confirmation, that's kind of the last in the Catholic Church. That's the last kind of big milestone. Um, and so, yeah, so for like 17 years, really, after that, never went to church, considered myself an atheist. And 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 that was that. But over the past few years, I've I've really started updating my views on that and this could be just, you know, basic life cycle effects. You know, there is a well-documented tendency for uh, for this type of thing to happen. As people get older, they might return to, uh, you know, some sort of like religious foundation. So there's definitely an empirical kind of life cycle tendency that might be operating. But I would also add, I think in, on top of that, it has in large part been through my my serious effort to grapple with, um, yeah, the the question of liberation and the question of of, of political revolution, really. I mean, I've been like an hardcore activist leftist ever since Occupy when I got like really politically radicalized and really kind of went hardcore into kind of the left wing tradition and, and trying to 
think about how to make revolution and, and trying to find the people that want to make revolution and thinking about it as an intellectual problem and as a as a as a as a solution yeah, as a potential solution to engineer. Uh, so, I mean, for the past six years, like I've been trying really earnestly, I, I would say, to to figure out how to make revolution in, in, in the left wing sense. And over the past few years, as I've been grappling with just what seems to me to be, as I said before, kind of hopelessly disingenuous, twisted, um, perverse, both self and other destructive kind of psychological and sociological tendencies that characterize the left as we know it, trying to figure out what the hell was actually going on and what actually what are the real pathways towards what people have historically labeled emancipation or, or liberation. All of that has pointed me in directions that seem to vindicate um, my my my, you know, religious memories and my and my my knowledge of my knowledge of religion. And just I think for me, since I was raised Catholic, I think a, a certain move back towards Catholicism uh, is just sort of the most the most likely or the most natural way for that to manifest itself. Yeah, and it's 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 interesting to me that that you found your way back to Catholicism, just because um, I'm I I grew up Catholic as well, and I I, I still have the the sort of residual uh, Catholic in me, even even though I don't necessarily I identify as very secular. But what's interesting is uh, for as much as people would consider Catholicism to generally have have veered towards the very conservative side of, of uh, thought. When we look at it historically, there's actually been a lot of interest uh, by Catholics in, in social movements that were not <laughs> right wing. Um, yeah, definitely. I'm specifically thinking of Dorothy Day mm -hmm. uh, with the Catholic workers. And then later on, since we're talking about emancipation, uh, the Je Jesuit liberation theology Absolutely. was very interested in it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Also, another one of my favorite signposts is Simone Weil. I don't know if you know much about her. No, no. Uh, tell me a bit more. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating and brilliant woman. Uh, early 20th century uh, French Jew, actually, who uh, in her kind of intellectual and philosophical development uh, moves increasingly towards Catholicism. She never ultimately joined the church, but she she basically refused to join the church because she thought she was not worthy of it. She was sort of so she became so Catholic that she 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 couldn't she couldn't get herself to, to join the church in some sense. You could interpret her. But basically, she was an anarchist, communist revolutionary straight up. You know, she went to fight in the Spanish Civil War and she wrote a, just a bunch of really incredible reflections. I mean, she she was a very, very special type of person. She wasn't just a philosopher. She was she was really something more like a saint. Um, you know, she had the, she had a very strong kind of saintly tendencies. I mean, she is known for um, really austere self flagellations of, of many kinds. She worked in factories, you know, uh, with with like the, you know, the most downtrodden manual laborers out of her own, you know, voluntary voluntary will. She, um, you know, when when there were rationing food during the war, you know, she she refused to eat more than, you know, the the people with the least. There are all these sorts of anecdotes in her in her life story. So it, it, it's wrong to think of if you ha if you think of her with the mold of like, you know, 20th century uh, French philosopher, intellectual, you, you'll you'll very much misunderstand 
her life. She she lived a, a radically devout type of religious existence, but she also was she was in the milieu uh, somewhat with uh, Jean Paul Sartre and and Simone de Beauvoir. In fact, in their graduating class, I believe Simone Weil graduated first, and it was only uh, Simone de Beauvoir, I believe, if I'm getting this right, actually graduated second in in their class. So very much in this court in this sort of uh, cur- these currents. But radically uh, independent, devout type of, of of religious personality. But she wrote a bunch of philosophical and political texts um, that, again, just like Adorno, is an interesting and and totally woefully underexplored resource for for thinking about um, you know these major existential issues that we're now being forced to confront because of things like you know accelerationism and artificial intelligence and all of that. Um, just like Adorno, I think Simone Bay is a, a radically underexplored resource for for thinking about a, a meaningful left wing ethics and politics, despite uh, extraordinary kind of um, existential difficulties. Well, I, I'll, I'll have to look more into her writing. Um, the other the other Catholic thinker I was going to mention uh, quickly here. Uh, because your your interest in honesty and truth sort of reminds me of of where he went was uh Thomas Merton hmm. who uh often talked about um committing raids on the unspeakable and the unspeakable are the um harsh realities that man has created in this world the injustices that we uh as as Catholics in in his view should confront hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with his work well, I, I'm not. I'm afraid to say I have not gotten to his work, but I've definitely heard of him uh, in different in different contexts. The, the name definitely rings a bell. But what you just cited sounds like hell yeah, man. That that's that's very consistent with with my own perspective. I think. Well, yeah, it's 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 uh yeah. I I think that's part of what you're doing is confronting the unspeakable in multiple ways, whether it comes to uh, the left, the right, or or even accelerationism. You know, I think you've uh you've opened up debate in all these areas, you know? Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. And and thank you for saying so. So, uh, I just want to wrap up with, uh, I always like to end on a, uh, positive note. <laughs> uh, what, what do you think is the best direction, uh, we can move in both individually and, and socially, um, when it comes to, you know, political activism or, or just in our uh, lives? Well, I think that the long-term prospects for humanity are extremely dismal and as i've already said i think that the our opportunities to avert that are are profoundly limited and but i but i also do think that as soon as people just take that seriously and are willing to accept that then i still believe that the the full extent of of the opportunities available to us are not yet known i think this is really crucial. I think that this is a, a Spinozan idea and a Deleuzean idea that, you know, you have to remember that we do not yet know what a body can do. I think what that what that means really is that currently so much human energy is wasted on people trying to lie about the nature of of the situation that we're in. All of this kind of moralism uh, is is basically humans wasting their actual capacities and, and wasting their actual potential. It's people refusing to become the the true joyous and and incredibly creative and flourishing people they could potentially become right now and immediately 
people are refusing to do this on a mass scale just because they're anxious or just because they have confused ideas um, or because they're stuck in like really depressive uh, ruts with, 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 with their own perspective and, and, and lives and behaviors. And I think once people kind of come to just accept the nature of, of, of reality, especially with respect to capitalism, this has concrete physiological effects in literally making you a more powerful type of person. People don't yet know what they are capable of. And when a bunch of people can kind of figure that out at the same time, it's even less clear what is, is, is conceivable, what, what we're capable of achieving if even small numbers of people together start hacking their own neurobiology in this way. That's why I've been talking a lot about neurobiology and reading people like Antonio Damasio, who have basically mapped out empirically how Spinoza was right and how these ideas are not just idealistic hopes and dreams. They're, this is a, this is an empirically sophisticated way of, of, of thinking about, you know, the choices and the options available to people right now. And, and this is why I'm not yet willing to, even though I think that the, the impending uh, consequences of, of the current state of capitalism and technology are extremely dismal. I'm not yet willing to relinquish kind of the left wing dream, if you will, of of what has been called emancipation or liberation or, you know, as I said before, even the the Catholic or Christian idea of of bringing heaven down to earth immediately. I, I'm not willing to give up on that precisely because I think once people accept, you know, these sort of accelerationist um confrontations with with reality i think the the what might present itself as as available or what might happen as a consequence is potentially has has a potentially limitless kind of upward ceiling and there's no telling how rapidly we could enact that and maybe to tell you a little bit more specifically about what that would look like or what that means i've kind of alluded to it already but i think it's as simple as you know it's a very delusian idea it's all imminent it's all it starts off at least more or less internal. You know, it, it's 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 immediately available to everyone. It's as simple as, you know, instead of getting lost in these like big molar um, aggregate con- concepts or ideas about what you think you have to do or what you're supposed to do or what other people are doing, instead of getting lost in all of that, go ever more molecularly, go ever more microscopically into yourself to find what gives you joy what seems to leave you with more power than when you started doing the thing and and just in, incrementally as much as possible starting now you know um hack your circumstances to to move in that direction through whatever fucking means uh, necessary like that's where the radicalism comes through like maximize your own joy at any cost and that's that's a that's a microscopic internal kind of um voyage but it doesn't stop in that internal kind of narcissistic, um, self-loving kind of way. That's only where it starts. That's to emphasize that it's immediately available to everyone. It Once you start doing this, again, I think there are demonstrable empirical reasons for this, which we could talk about more at length at, at a future time. And I've tried to write a lot about it. And I'll continue to try to write about it. But there are good, almost scientific empirical reasons for expecting that if you start to do this, new things are going to open up. And it's going to connect you with other people also looking for the same thing. And then once you have that, once you have network effects, again, the accelerationist motifs come back in. You start to see exponential possibilities in network effects. 
But this time they're pointing upward. This time they're pointing towards increasing joy, increasing collective power. And to me, that's the actual way to engineer a, a genuine, empirically sophisticated and possible uh, radical left wing emancipatory politics, uh, despite or within the accelerationist confrontation. Well, it, it reminds me of what, um, you know, like Max Stirner would say in um, The Ego and Its Own, where he, you know, he sort of pushes back on this idea that if we have a form of self-love that will become, you know, sort of monstrous and, and hurt others. And he he, uh, he says in that book, he's like, well, why would I do that? Because that would just hurt myself as well. Right. You know, it's it's a kind of interesting way to look at it. Uh, yes, I, I completely agree with that. Again, um, Max Stirner is like Thomas Merton for me as someone who a lot of people have mentioned him to me, but I just haven't gotten around to reading either of them. So maybe I'll finally get around to doing that. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to having you on again at some future date. Maybe we can... Uh, discuss Deleuze and Guattari. I'd, I'd love to uh, have a discussion about their work. And I want to thank you again, Justin Murphy, for coming on the Parallax Views podcast. Well, hey, I just want to thank you for your interest in my work and your interest in, in talking with me. I really appreciate it. This has been definitely very edifying. And I feel like I've with your, with your help, you know, we've kind of uh, or I've kind of perhaps even advanced my own understanding of my own thoughts. And that's always a good sign just internally of of a really good and I would even dare say, you know, in its own slight way, radical type of of intellectual exchange. So I'm extremely grateful. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Justin Murphy and consider checking out Justin's blog, YouTube channel and other life podcast linked to in the episode description. Given how Justin and I's discussion traversed both religion and social fragmentation, I thought it would be apropos to end this episode with a little track called Celestial Breakdown by Tonebox. As I always say, check them out, folks. <laughs>